Hello again. Thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and it's great to have your company again for this, the 323rd and a third episode. Uh, coming up, we're going to be looking at uh, the 100th anniversary of a major event in astronomy and space science involving Einstein, which Fred knows everything about because I think he's giving a lecture on it tonight. Mm. Uh, we're also going to talk about Mars because uh, there's uh, been some uh, interesting findings on Mars and it's all to do with vibrations. Uh, Jerry wants to know about the threat from solar flares and Tom from Minnesota on calculating distances across the vastness of the universe. That's all to come on this episode of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. That was a false start. Just give me half a second. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me as always is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? I am well, sir. How are That's you? Good. I'm very well, too. Thank you. That's um, good. Now, before things... before we get onto astronomy and space science, uh, did you watch the funeral last night, the funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth II? Her Majesty. Yes, of course I did. Her Majesty. I, um, I uh, had to be uh, glued to the TV um, to see just to sort of feel as though I was on the other side of the world and part and parcel of it. Um and, and it was quite astonishing. I think anybody who watched the, the 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 solemn pageantry that took place yesterday would have been very impressed with just the way the way it happens. You can argue all kinds of things about the monarchy and things of that sort, but uh, for my money, the Brits do this sort of thing better than anybody else, probably in the entire universe, because they've been at it for quite a while. You know, oh thousand, yes, thousand years or so, something like that. Yeah, pomp and ceremony is, um, yeah, that's that's bread and butter. It is them. Uh, certainly for the royal family, and it, but um, uh, it reminded me a lot uh, of. The time the note that I watched the coronation itself live. On Hang on, the BBC. that was 1950... 1953. 53. Yeah, 69 years ago. Uh, it worked because um, I was a kid, of course, in those days, uh, a youngster. Um, we were the first house in our street to have a TV set. So wow. all the, the neighbours were in. Yeah, we were posh, yeah. <laughs> uh, not that posh, though, I can tell you. Uh, the neighbours all came in and there was a bit of a party going on. And um, I remember my brother and I sitting, my brother's younger, three years younger than me, uh, sitting watching all this. But we'd we'd been uh, we'd been given gifts by I don't know whether it was a local council or the, the government or the royal family themselves, but we got things. We we had a mug, a coronation mug. Uh, we had I also had a, a the coronation coach, a little toy of the coronation coach and all the horses. Right. But we'd also been given a penknife each, oh. um, and which was really useful. But um, the highlight of the broadcast uh, when we're all sitting watching the coronation was when my brother John cut his finger with the penknife and there was blood everywhere, <laughs> which was quite a dramatic 
uh, not quite an end to the proceedings, but it certainly distracted from the solemnity of the of the coronation. I can imagine. Um, but you know, actually, uh, just uh, as an aside, um, I grew up in the nineteen fifties, obviously, and that the, having a young queen like that, mm-hmm. somebody who, right from the word go, they all loved her. They didn't have to work hard to do that because, you know, they loved her father, George VI, who who died quite young. Uh, But they loved Queen Elizabeth. And we were the – it was the new Elizabethan era. It was quite striking. And Britain Mm. was kind of doing things and going places but gradually got overtaken by all sorts of other things. Um, And, uh, yeah, it was was a remarkable time to be alive. And, yes, the the, the proceedings last night took me back to all that. And did you ever meet her? Uh, I did, but with 30,000 other school kids. Oh, right. Uh, Same. Yeah. Sort of. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, And we sang to her, which I'd forgotten all about until a couple of weeks ago. I watched the video just because you can get all this on Newsreel. It's Newsreel stuff now. And sure enough, there's footage of 30,000 school children in Bradford in Yorkshire singing on Oaklamore Bartat which is a Yorkshire song, to the Queen uh, wow. in okay. 1954. <laughs> it's, amazing, it's amazing how long that papyrus tape lasts. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bit like that. Incredible. It's, it's astonishing that they've still got it, but it's great. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, she will be sadly missed and uh, her son has got big, big shoes to fill. Indeed, that's right. Yeah. But we, I, can see, I can see the strain on his face too, the yeah. poor fella. I, yeah. I feel for him. He's... Um, yeah. He's grieving while having to run a uh, run a the empire. <laughs> yeah, as it mm. used to be. We have a connection with Charles, though. He yeah. opened he opened the Anglo Australian Telescope in 1974, oh, right. and when when we celebrated the telescope's 40th birthday back in 2014, Marnie, my other half, uh, wrote to the the prince and said, uh, "We." We're celebrating 40 years since you opened this telescope. Do you want to come and do a bit of a gig with it? Uh, and the answer, of course, was no. But we got a lovely letter back from one of his um, aides, which said he remembered it fondly and uh, was really had followed the progress of the telescope with interest throughout its career and wished it well for the future. There you go. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd better get on with it. We had, um, we, well, that's yes. kind of vaguely astronomical. It was, yeah. Well, it <laughs> dovetailed nicely. Yes, it indeed. Segway. Um, now, let's talk about uh, Einstein's eclipse. Now, I must confess I don't know a lot about this. I have seen things popping up in astronomy news, uh, but yeah. you're right on the pulse of this because you're giving a lecture on the subject. Um, yes, but I, I give lectures on many things that I'm not actually on the pulse of, Andrew. But I am on this because <laughs> <Like> space nuts. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, it's uh, look. It, it's something that um, caught me a bit by surprise. Actually, um, mm. the, the fact is that we, you know, we celebrate uh, the proof of relativity. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. But we celebrate that as having been in eclipse in on the 29th of May, 1919. So what the story is that Einstein published his general theory of relativity uh, in November, was it? Yes, November 1915. And and of course it says that space is bendy, that um, mass actually distorts space, and we feel that distortion as gravity. That's the bottom line of the theory. And that is a bizarre idea. You know, only a loony would believe that. (laughs) Um, And so really the impetus was on to try and prove it. And there were eclipse expeditions, some of which have got 
quite sad stories. There was one that um, somebody who's in a way connected with me, a man called Erwin Freundlich, who was one of Einstein's colleagues at Berlin Observatory. And Freundlich went to try and observe an eclipse in 1914, just before the um, before Einstein had finally published his work, but he knew that an eclipse was the way to prove it. Uh, and sadly, uh, it coincided with the First World War starting. So Freundlich oh. got locked away somewhere for several months. I think uh, I the, heard about that. Yeah, yeah. The connection with me is that he's my academic grandfather, my oh, wow. uh, master's supervisor. Uh, it was it was his supervisor. So there's a how about that? Yeah, my, my, my one claim to fame. Anyway, <laughs> um, cutting all that short. So the 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 way to prove this weird theory was to observe stars around the edge of the sun during an eclipse when the sun's light is blotted out by the moon, which means yep. you can see the stars beyond it with big telescopes, measure their positions really accurately, <clears throat> do the same thing six months later when the, when the, moon's not, the sun isn't there, uh, and there's a difference between them, the positions of the stars. In fact, the stars will look as though they're being deflected away from the sun. Yeah. Um, so you, you measure that deflection and when they do, when they did that, they can demonstrate that relativity was correct. Now, with um, the 1919 eclipse, there was only a handful of stars for which measurements could be made. It was Arthur Eddington who made the measurements, but nevertheless, uh, it was enough to convince people that relativity was real. And so that's always ha hailed as the, um, you know, as the as the. The, the smoking gun that proved relativity back in 1919. Mm. In fact, the headlines were all over the world. It was accepted that relativity was a fact. But there were a lot of astronomers who knew the details of what had been done and were not that happy uh, with the outcome. They were worried that the result was um, uh, that it could could have been wrong, that it, it, it could have been a negative proof. In other words, you know, that you failed to demonstrate that these stars had been deflected by the mass of the sun, uh, by the amount predicted by relativity. And so there were several attempts to observe other eclipses, um, uh, which culminated on the 21st of September, 1922, when an eclipse uh, came, it was across the Indian Ocean, uh, passed across Christmas Island and right across Australia from west to east. Right. Uh, so there were five expeditions. One of them was a private expedition, just a man and his daughter, but she was a professional photographer, and so the, the, you know, the, the, there were results to report. Uh, but the expeditions were along the line of the eclipse, um, starting in Western Australia at a place called Wallow, uh, if that is on the 80 mile beach, uh, which is uh, not far from Broome, and then culminating in Gundiwindi uh, on the border between Queensland and New South Wales, and a place called Stanthorpe in northern New South Wales. And there was another place as well. So various measurements were made. These different uh, sites had hosted different expeditions. The most important one was mounted by Lick Observatory. With a, uh, which is a big observatory in uh, California. They had one of the biggest telescopes in the world at that time. Mm. And that observatory uh, also liaised with the University of Toronto and New Zealand astronomers and also astronomers from India. Uh, so they mounted a huge set of, uh, you know, of, uh, observations 
enormous quantities of equipment. They had wonderful support from the First Nations people in the area because it's a very remote place. And unusually, there were five women on that expedition as well. Um, one of them was the director's wife of Lick, but she was an astronomer too. And that's, you know, remarkable. So they produced the, the most spectacular results. Uh, further down the track, there were other expeditions. Uh, University of Adelaide had one. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne observatories had one. A bunch of amateur astronomers had one. And that bunch of amateur astronomers were led by a man called Walter Gale, who is commemorated in many of our conversations about Mars, Andrew. Gale Crater? Gale Crater, where Curiosity is. is named wow. after Walter Gale, an Australian astronomer. Well, well. But the uh, so the, the results from the Lick Observatory team in uh, Wallal and Western Australia they uh, analysed the positions of a hundred more more than a hundred stars and proved quite conclusively that yes relativity was real and they sort of drew a line under that question mark and since then of course there have been many many different measurements including gravitational lensing all yep. of these things that demonstrate that relativity works and uh, still that, still many attempts to prove him wrong. Yes, well, that's right. But uh, on this level, he's definitely right. Um, you know, relativity works to about one part in 10 to the 18 or something ridiculous like that. We'd love mm. to have it proved wrong. One of the things I really liked about this story, though, Andrew, is that um, in Gundawindi, uh, which is a small town inland on the New South Wales-Queensland border. Been there many uh, times. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been through it many times um, on the way north. Um, but they were relatively easy to get to because they're on a railway line. Yeah. Uh, and many, many people came to watch the eclipse and it was became quite festive for days and days beforehand. Yeah, um, that sounds like Gundawindi. And, yeah, anyway, um, a, a, a poet, a bush poet, and bush poetry is something that's very characteristic of Australia. It sure is. <laughs> uh, a bush poet by the name of John Sands, uh, who wrote in a Melbourne newspaper called The Argus, he published a, a poem called The Passing Show on the 16th of September. And if I may, I'm going to read a few verses from Ah, oh, yes, please. <laughs> Right, here we go. Then the news ran round the stations and raised the squatters' hopes when scientists got busy and unpacked their telescopes. And the cowmen flocked to the township in eagerness to see the testing of Einstein's theory of relativity. There were telescopes and cameras and gadgets by the score. Then Baldwin's crowd from Melbourne town brought just as many more. Yet still they came, those scientists, in dozens and in scores until the Gundiwindians were forced to close their doors. By train they came and mowed a car by horse and four-wheel trap. Gundiwindi smiled serenely. It was once more on the map. And the squatters and the cowmen, why their knowledge scientific defies all explanation. It was simply, well, terrific. That is fantastic, yeah. I, gosh, there's some clever people out there that can string those things together. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, of course, the, uh, uh, the locals call it Gundy. They just... Gundy, we, yeah, abri Gundy we abbreviate windy. everything, so it's Gundy. Gundy Windy. I um, I apologise. I've never been able to do an Australian accent, but that was the best I can do. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> no, I heard a little bit. There was a bit coming through. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've only been here 40 years, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to change. Yes, yes it is. I met a, um, a, a French woman who moved here when she was very young, 
and she's bilingual, but uh, this was a week or two ago at a, a writer's festival, and she has the most normal Aussie accent you've ever oh, heard. And I just <laughs> said, well, where's your French accent? She said, I don't have one. I said, why? She said, because I've lived here yeah. for so very long. Yeah. Uh, she was young enough to come here to yeah, when, yes, wipe it that's out. that's right, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I, I should have asked a follow-up question like, uh, well, when you speak French, do you, you have an Australian an accent? accent? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she probably does, actually. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, my wife's mm. fluent in, in French, but she grew oh, she she worked, lived for a long time in the south of France, so they all think she's a southerner when, <laughs> it's just, when she speaks French. Oh, yeah, from the south. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, and you're giving a lecture on the um, anniversary yes, of the, the confirmation of? Tonight, that's well, right. Typically. We we hope we'll be able to get it online as well. It's a it's a this is a face to face lecture, but there, there right. might be something eventually. Actually, I might just while I'm talking about that, Andrew, if I may, mm. plug. Uh, there is a book um, which is coming out next year. I'm afraid it's a while yet. I think it's March when it's supposed to come out. It's called Eclipse Chasers, and it's about eclipses in Australia. Uh, and it's written by friends of mine, Tona Stevenson, uh, Nick, uh, uh, Nick Long, both of whom are ex-directors of the, or manage of the, managers of the Sydney Observatory. Um, they've, they've edited it and a number of other people have contributed to it. There's a marvellous chapter, though, on this particular eclipse. Fantastic. I, I, I've had a preview of the book. It is a stunning book. So we might mention that again oh. next year. When it- yeah. Of course, we've got a big one coming up in about six years is it 2028? Yeah, 2028. That's right. It goes right over Dubbo and right over Sydney. We'll be, so. we'll be almost at the centre of totality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In be. fact, 40 kilometres out of town at Ballymore, I think, is where they'll be right in the middle of it. Yeah. I hope nice. it's a nice day. So do we. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we can talk about that later. I think we might be able to talk about it later. Yeah. <laughs> this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Okay, let's take a quick break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, NordVPN, as I've said many times, is the best service in the business. They've got the fastest servers, they've got the best uh, encryption, and they will protect six devices at the same time, and that includes your smart TV. Now, a virtual private network is just like putting up the Great Wall of China in front of your privacy. That's the most simple way of describing it. And as a Space Nuts listener, you are entitled to a really good deal with our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, when you go to the website, uh, and it's a special URL, nordvpn.com slash Space Nuts, you'll be met with the uh, the page that has a little button that says use the coupon. Now, please note there is a 30-day money-back guarantee with NordVPN, so you can buy with confidence. And what they're offering is a cybersecurity package. It's not just the virtual private network that you're getting. You're getting a whole ream of tools that will protect you from hackers and whoever else wants to get hold of your personal data. And they offer you a uh, plus four months package as well. So you get bonus months when you sign up for NordVPN. So click on the use coupon code. And don't forget that the special code is space nuts if you need to type it in. But they have uh, several plans available. Now, the uh, the plan that I'd recommend is the complete package. It saves you 69% 
and it gives you high-speed VPN, malware protection, tracker and ad blocker protection, uh, cross-platform password management, data breach scanning, and best of all, or in, in addition to, the one terabyte of encrypted cloud storage. Uh, cloud storage is the way to go. I, I use it all the time and I find it so handy. It just, you know, everything's safe. If your computer dies, it doesn't matter because it's, uh, it's all backed up. It is a really fantastic tool and it's part of the package. If you don't want to go all the way, you can buy the intermediate package or the standard package, or standard plus and complete. Anyway, look it up. Have a look at it, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Pick a plan that suits you. You've got a few months up your sleeve to decide whether or not it is for you. I'm confident that you will be most impressed and very satisfied with our sponsor, NordVPN. So go to the special URL, nordvpn.com slash space nuts for your uh, special uh, price and extra benefits as a Space Nuts listener from our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, let's head off to the Red Planet. Um, it's uh, This is all about the um, the ongoing study into Mars quakes, but now they've uh, been able to um, sort of get down and dirty with the vibrations and they've honed in on a bit of stuff. Yeah, this is really nice science. Um, it's just, you know, this kind of thing that you live and breathe for in the world of science. Uh, and actually, if anybody wants to follow this up, it's, uh, there's a very nice article on the conversation by mm. uh, a scientist from uh, Curtin University in Western Australia, Katerina Milkovic, I think is the way you pronounce her name. Uh, and um, Katerina has written this account of the fact that um, the basically one of the one of the uh, spacecraft that's on mars uh, has been able to locate impact craters of, from meteorites on mars by detecting the shock waves that they send so um what's the story here is that insight uh, which you might remember is um, it's not a rover. It's been there, I think, since 2016, yeah. um, based on uh, on um, basically a, a, a flat sheet of metal uh, with legs on it, uh, and it's got solar panels on it, which apparently are caked up with Martian dust at the moment. So there's possibly uh, no more power coming through and perhaps by the end of this year it will it will die uh, but the um, insight was equipped with famously uh, a drill to plant a thermometer down in oh, the yes. soil uh, which never really worked properly uh, because the idea was to measure the heat flow from mars's interior it was all about detecting things from the interior of mars so that was a bit of a a, a bit of a dud but the other part of it was its seismometers um, and the seismometers uh, actually were basically there to see whether we could hear anything coming through the rocks of Mars. Yeah. And they've detected in its history, actually 2018 was, I think, when it landed there, not 2016, um, mm. more than 1,300 Mars quakes have been detected. And so there's a huge amount of data there. And what they've been able to do is um, – do some really clever work that's allowed them to use these seismic vibrations uh, coming through the rock or through the seismometers uh, to use that to detect something landing and then to identify the crater. 
that it's caused, okay. which, which you can do from one of the orbiting spacecraft, Mars Express or, uh, you know, Mars um, Global Orbiter and things of that sort. Um, uh, those, those, sorry, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, let me get it right, and another active orbiting spacecraft. So what the, the, the trick is that um, you get not just, if, if something comes from space, a meteor, which is zooming through the atmosphere and is going to be a meteorite because it'll land on the ground. Yep. Um, Mars's atmosphere is only 1% as dense as the Earth's. And so it behaves in a different way, plus the fact that it's made of carbon dioxide mostly, which is different from what we've got. So mm. um, meteorites behave or meteors behave in a different way. And quite often you get a double uh, a double bang, a, a two, two sort of explosions, one uh, which is called... The first airburst, and another which is Let me called guess, guess, guess. the <laughs> yes. second airburst. Oh, well done, Andrew. Well done. <laughs> that was hard. Oh no, it's hard work, isn't it? So you get these two, um, and they send acoustic waves down to the ground, which vibrates the ground. Yeah, um, and it's the timing of this. It's all about timing. So, uh, so insight detects the the vibrations in the ground and does it very accurately with timing. And it can also uh, sense the direction as well to some extent. Mm. So what you've got is a direction and a distance uh, to these two airbursts, and that means you can then plot a trajectory for the incoming meteorite, uh, and you can get an idea of where it will have landed. And they've actually been able to do this and then used uh, you know the mars orbiting mars reconnaissance orbiter uh, observations to actually look for the, the new craters and sure enough they found them yeah. i think that's an astonishing result it is they've even published photos yes they have yeah that's mm-hmm. right and uh, some quite interesting diagrams actually uh, in, in uh, katarina's uh, conversation piece there's some nice diagrams as to how it works and how they're mm-hmm. able to actually do this this science it's a very impressive a piece of work and of course it involves our favorite planet and involves quakes and things like that it's got everything isn't it yeah now they, they do think most of the quakes are caused by these impacts but uh, are they detecting any that are coming from inside mars yes there, there's been a number uh, quite a few uh, some of which you and i've spoken about in the past i think caused I possibly by uh shrinkage you know the fact that That's the crust it, yes. is is shrinking a bit and so you get wobblings yeah, so it's not likely that it's some kind of activity within the planet. It's more like deactivating that's causing it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Bit sad. Mars is getting old and starting to wrinkle. That's <laughs> that's really all it comes down to. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I, I tend to agree. All right. Uh, but that's really, uh, if you want to uh, look up that article, it is on theconversation.com. It's, uh, it's worth looking at. It's not a massive article, which is unusual for the conversation, but yeah, that's right. uh, it's, yeah. it's a really good read, so uh, check it out. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here, and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems, and Space Nuts. Now, Fred, let's tackle some questions. And this uh, first question comes from Jerry. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for uh, texting into us. Hello, Andrew and Fred. I love Astronomy Daily. Oh, thank you. Uh, to get up, uh, get the latest up-to-date celestial happenings. And I love Space Nuts because you and Fred go into such detail explaining things and answering questions. My question is, 
since a lot of the world is going solar panels, uh, including electric companies and cities, is it possible that a major solar event could short them out or melt the electronics, rendering them useless someday in the future? It could be an expensive failure and major disruption in electricity, etc. Jerry, thanks. Uh, Great question, Jerry. And you know, your timing is perfect because I was only just reading about a sunspot, uh, (laughs) AR3089, which uh, they're keeping an eye on because they're a little bit uh, worried about it. Do you get that? They're keeping an eye on. Uh, but they're, they're a little bit worried about, about it because um, it, it's even though it's quiet at the moment, it's developed a delta-class magnetic field which has the energy of X-class solar flares, and that's the strongest class of solar flare. But it's a variable thing. But potentially an X-class solar flare could uh, release as much energy as a billion hydrogen bombs at the most Mm. intense end of the scale, which is scary to think about. So they're keeping an eye on that one. So if something like that hit Earth, would it destroy all the solar panels? Like where I live, Fred, in good old Dub Vegas, um, (laughs) in central New South Wales, we have per capita more solar panels on household roofs, including mine, than anywhere else in, I think, New South Wales, but possibly Australia. Australia, yeah. I'm mm. not surprised. I mean, you, you do get a lot of sunshine there in your yeah, we do. city. Well, you yes. used to before it started raining. Well, this year uh, is, a, is an exception, but most yeah. of the time, yeah, we get um, just piles and piles of sunshine. So um, I think actually, you know, if you've got an X-class flare that's a super flare, and something that might be comparable with the Carrington event, which was it 1869 or 18, I think it was 1869. Blew up all the telegraphs. Yes, it did. Yeah. But fried all the telegraphs in the USA, which Mm. were, you know, just starting to be laid by railway lines. Uh, And uh, that, it was associated with a sunspot group. It was observed by an astronomer called Carrington, uh, who noticed a very distinct brightening of, of this spot on the sun. Uh, and that turned out to be this solar flare, which released a lot of energy in the direction of the Earth and uh, did all this damage. Now, a Carrington event today, yeah, would would be critically dangerous in many ways. Um, and it's one of the things that, uh, space engineers have tried to harden their satellites against so that um, you've got, you know, all the delicate electro, the sens- most sensitive electronics are inside <clears throat> some fairly serious um, shielding. Yeah. Uh, but we're still left with everything on Earth. And <clears throat> was it 1989, if I remember rightly, there was a, a similar event. It wasn't Carrington in scale, but it wasn't far off, that wiped mm. out the power grid in uh I think it was Quebec in Canada. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think they were left without power for 12 hours, 9 million customers, if I remember rightly. And that's because when you've got these long uh, power delivery cables, and we live quite near some of those, you know, big pylons with their uh, sort of striding across the country with their cables attached to them. Yeah. Uh, what you get with solar flares is is highly magnetized regions that you sweeping magnetic field lines across across these wires and what that does is generates a current it's how currents generated mm. and so you 
actually add to the current that's traveling through the wires and it blows out all the safety equipment everything triggers so that the whole thing shuts down that's what happened with the uh, the quebec um march uh, the 13th 1989 at a quarter to three in the morning i got the year right yeah. <laughs> uh nine million was it uh, households that were left without or something nine million consumers well, it doesn't give me a number here that i can uh, see this is on like... this is on nasa's website nasa.gov okay, yeah, topics yeah. but uh it uh, did black out quite extensive areas um around quebec and yep. other parts of north america yeah so um th- so that's the result of uh, of an X-class flare on on long, uh, heavy-duty power cables. Now, I guess the the alternate question is: All right, so what happens when magnetic fields lines like that sweep across the cables connecting your solar panel to your to your power, you know, your power center in in the house? And yeah. I don't know what the answer is to that. Um, I would guess that. There would potentially be damage. There could be risk. Could be risk from things catching fire. Yeah. Uh, but um, I don't know whether you know whether you're any more sensitive to damage if you've got solar panels and you know you've you've kind of off the grid or something. Whether you're more sensitive with that than you are with um, a, a mains power, something that is on the grid. Mm. Uh, I'm not enough of an engineer to know the answer to that. But it's a really interesting question. So uh, I think. Uh, for Jerry, you know, the answer is maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, of course, for it to be an extensive hit, it has to be a direct hit. It's got to yeah, broadside right. the planet, like, yeah. like you know, firing a, a salvo exactly. from a ship. You've got to hit yeah. it dead centre. Yeah. Yep. So if we get glanced, it might not do much, although they do have um, a space weather warning system now for yeah, things oh like yeah, this. Yeah, all of that's sort of inbuilt. We, at least the one thing we do have now that they didn't have in those days is a very complete uh, space weather warning system with mm. lots of spacecraft which are monitoring the sun all the time and looking at exactly these things so that they can send alerts out to people like you who listen to spaceweather.com. Yeah. Yes, um, that, there have been isolated incidents over the years, and there was there was one blackout spot that was caused only a year or two ago in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it affected shipping more so than anything, but yeah. um, and, and dolphins. But uh, it's um, <laughs> do, do they have radio? Well, they have wires in do. their head. Yeah, <laughs> the, the the ones used by the U.S. Navy apparently. Oh yes, of course. There's that too. Yeah. That's right. I don't know, yeah. but um, yes, the answer, Jerry, is perhaps. And let's not hope we find out because I'm still looking at AR three zero eight nine and. Yeah. Well, yes. Keep us posted, Andrew. We, well, we might we might find out before I have to keep me posted. <laughs> Who knows? You might, you might not be able to keep us posted. <laughs> That's a possibility too. <laughs> but can you imagine if a, a doomsday scenario like that happened and uh, electronics across yeah. vast areas of the world were just wiped Fried. out? Yeah, I know. Be going down to the river with a bucket to get more water. That'd be exactly. It's all of that. That's right. Mm. Everything uses electronics these days. It does indeed. Yes. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Lovely to hear from you. Let's now go to Minnesota, where I believe Tom is hanging his hat. Uh, he's got a question for us. 
Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Tom from Minnesota in the U.S., and I have a question about calculating large distances between the Earth and deep space objects. So when we see a headline that says something like, Webb captured a photo of a galaxy that's 13 billion light years away, I'm assuming that that galaxy is not exactly 13 billion light years away. So I'm curious if there's some sort of standard practice for rounding large numbers such as this. Perhaps you're always supposed to round up or down or to the nearest decimal point. I find it fascinating to think that if you were to round to the nearest decimal point, you could potentially be wiping out 100 million <laughs> light years of distance. Any information on this topic, I'd find incredibly fascinating. Keep up the good work. I'm a huge fan of the show. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. I'm sorry to tell you, everything is exactly to the round figure away from us. <laughs> it's just a weird coincidence. Isn't it just, yeah. Mm. No, um, Tom's right on the money with the rounding. And it's just, you know, astronomers just do what, um, you do in any science uh, that's quantitative, that, that involves numbers, um, you don't quote the figure to more decimal places and the accuracy of your measurement will stand. Uh, and so the, that particular number that Tom mentions, the age of the universe, 13.8 billion years, um, I, I seem to remember from uh, – the last time that was estimated, uh, which comes from the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, it was with an accuracy of something in the region of, of what, exactly the number Tom mentions, 100 million years. And so you can quote it to a decimal of a billion years uh, if you're good to 100 million years. Uh, so 13.8, 13, 13 uh, it could be 13.9, could be 13.7, but 13.8 is the most likely so, you, you know, if you were being pedantic, you could say 13.8 plus or minus 100 million years. Mm. And, I suppose um, the, the problem also arises with, uh, you know, publishing a scientific paper about something that's so many, you know, so far away. If they went to the uh, maximum decimal place, there's three pages of their paper. <laughs> well, yes, that's right. But you don't, that, the thing is, you know, if what you're doing, if you did that, you're, you're, um, you're putting more decimal places in something than are meaningful in terms yeah. of your measurements that you've made. Uh, and that's why, you know, one one part in 100 million years, oh, sorry, a, an error of 100 million years is quite a long time. Mm. Uh, it, you know, it's it, it, on earthly standards. So the 66 million years since the dinosaurs were wiped out, it's still that's within the error. But yeah. for something as esoteric as the origin of the universe, it's not a bad answer, actually. Uh, and we, but we also, just to add to this d debate, we've, and you and I have spoken about this, um, if you measure the age of the universe by the expansion of the universe today and compare it with the cosmic microwave background radiation, you get two different answers, yes. um, which differ by something like 3 or 4%. Um, now, that's still... Uh, less. That's still within the hundred million year era uh, in the age of the universe, but it still it troubles people. So what you, what you're seeing here is that as our estimates get more and more accurate, uh, you get more and more worried about different estimates that that uh, diverge from each other. Mm. Uh, so um, even though I think you can say with confidence, thirteen point eight billion years is our best estimate of the age of the universe, with the slight 
differences in the in the what's called the Hubble constant, which is actually one of the things that determines that. It's fascinating, if not comical, to read articles from time to time where the numbers bounce. Like some people say thirteen point five, some people yeah. say thirteen point eight, some people thirteen point seven. So you've got to wonder where they're getting their numbers from. Yeah, I see that a lot, um, and it's. Uh, I, I mean, I have tended to concentrate on the numbers that came from the Planck spacecraft. Planck, uh, not not a piece of wood, but uh, Max Planck. Uh, it's a European spacecraft which did its work a decade or so ago and gave us the best estimate from the cosmic microwave background radiation. And I think it was that that was 13.8 plus or minus 100 million years, yeah. um, which is a better estimate than... There were two previous spacecraft measuring the cosmic microwave background before that, COBE uh, and WMAP, uh, and each one of those successively got a more accurate answer because they were able to see more more detail in the, in the background radiation. So in terms of a distance to Alpha Centauri, for example, yeah. Yeah. would we be able to give an exact distance? Because everything's moving, so it yeah, wouldn't yeah, always be one number. No, it wouldn't. Um, but the movement in on human timescales is less than the error in our measurements. Right. Because uh, Proxima Centauri is one of the stars that you can measure by um, what we call the parallax method. You, you, you look at, you measure its position on when the Earth's on one side of its orbit, compare with position on the other side. Right. And, it, and that gives you a, a really accurate distance. Um uh, but you're quite right, it's moving. And so, in fact, um, I think Gaia, which is a spacecraft uh, measuring positions very accurately, uh, I think it can, it can measure to a, something like a millionth of an arc second. Arc second is one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. It's a tiny angle. Mm. But a millionth of them is even tinier. And I think uh, with Gaia, they've been able to measure that change in distance accurately as it moves uh, because it does move quite quickly through the sky yeah proxima centauri yeah so uh, really interesting uh, really interesting stuff so you can give a you know as i mean when i say an accurate answer you're probably still only to two decimal places of a light year but it's still that's pretty good hundredth yeah. of a light year will be very accurate but for the sake of simplicity we just round up all 4.3 that's right 4.3 yeah. light years yep. there you go tom it's just a rounding thing it's just lazy humans basically <laughs> can't be bothered wasting the ink on all those extra numbers that's really yeah because because they don't mean anything yeah well it's the cost of ink really that's, <laughs> that's the problem right. that's what that it is <laughs> that's a problem mm. yeah thanks tom lovely to hear from you hope all is well in minnesota uh, we're just about done fred it's all over red rover oh. Yes. Yeah, but of course, if you have questions for us, we'd love to hear from you. All you need to do is send them, uh, which Mm. you can do in audio format on our website or as a text on the AMA tab where you can do both or you can click on the link on the right-hand side that says send us your voice questions. And if you've got a device with a microphone like I have, see? Uh, you can you can record it. I'm going to try it one day, actually. You know, let me show you my phone case. My my grandchildren made this. Oh, me. that's lovely. That's me yeah. playing golf. I yeah. might have shown you before. No, I haven't and, seen that before. Yeah, and that's a heart, not a bum. Yeah, and <laughs> I think that hang on, it might be on the inside. Oh yeah, that's little Harry, my three year old. That's a tortoise. Good. Tortoise, uh, right there. That was their Christmas present to me. So Decor- it's funny, you know. Decorated. Yeah. Whenever I take it out to, because I've got all my credit cards and everything in here, um, 
whenever I take it out to pay for something, if there's a young girl at the checkout, she says, oh, I love your case. Where'd you get that? <laughs> and I say, well, actually, it's homemade. My yeah. So there you go. Yeah, very nice. Um, but, yes, send us your questions and don't forget to do some reviews. Uh, we, we've been getting some really good ones lately, so thank you to those who've uh, uploaded Absolutely. reviews through their podcast platform because we, we um, want to grow our family and the only way is reviews. The more reviews, the more people that notice us, the more people who join Space Nuts and the more people that can talk to each other on social media at the Space Nuts Podcast Group Facebook page, uh, et cetera. Mm. So, uh, yes, please, please send us your reviews. I think we're done, Fred. Oh, don't forget to visit the Space Nuts shop while you're there. There's plenty of goodies. You've got one of those. You can get one of those. I know you can't. I made that. Uh, but there's a, there's a cup there and there's, there's stickers. See? Oh, they're on the shelf, but they're there. Uh, and much, much more on our shop on spacenuts.io. Thank you, Fred. That's where we're going to wrap it up. Lovely to catch up with you again. <laughs> and you too, Andrew. And have a good week and we'll speak again soon. You too. Take care. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening or watching or both. And we'll catch you again on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye for now. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>